glad y'all are here. We have to be a well-oiled machine this morning because we have 8 million children that are being dedicated on one Sunday. So um, not uh, that is an exaggeration, but um, moving expeditiously is not an exaggeration. Uh, I'm going to pray uh, in a moment. I want to make a couple of brief announcements. Uh, Scott gave a thorough uh, list of announcements there. I want to add to something there. I want to add to this all-hands-on-deck sort of uh, announcement that Scott shared for our children's ministry. When we came here 15 years ago, there was one wee baby in the children's ministry, and it was Daniel McGraw, and that's it. And the Lord has been gracious. He has blessed us uh, numerically with our church has grown from the nursery and the children's ministry upward. And we can celebrate that. We can enjoy that. Um, but we need to participate in that as well. If you're, two thoughts, if you're a member of Crosspoint Fellowship and you're not participating in the children's ministry, I, I just implore you. You may be involved in another ministry. You may be involved in other ways at Crosspoint. And, man, I'm thankful. We are thankful for that. But the children ministry needs every member involved. Every member involved. I'm committing to when I'm on sabbatical serving in the children's ministry because I won't be standing here twice in a row on Sunday mornings. I want to participate. And Christy McGraw can vouch that it's really hard for Ben McGraw. I don't change diapers. So just take note of that where you place me. No dirty diapers. I'm done with that. Okay. Um, if you're not a member and you've been visiting with us for some time and it's clear that you should be here and you just haven't membered yet, we haven't put you to work because you're not a member. So please, nobody's forcing you to do that. It's just the encouragement and realization that you're sort of on the receiving end of ministry that you're not participating in. And you need to make that official so you can be participating in something that is blessing you right now. Okay. The other announcement. Um, we have those pictures? Yes. Put that up. Put that up of, of um, Sheila and Buddy. <laughs> Y'all stand. Stand up. Sheila and Buddy. Come on, Sheila. You got to stand. <laughs> These two right here are getting married tomorrow. Tomorrow at 5.07 right here. So if you don't have plans, y'all can sit down now. If you, if you don't have plans, here's a real picture of This is a real picture, but here's a more normal picture, right? There's two? Aren't there two? Yeah, and there's Coleman in there. Awesome. So, um, man, what a great story. I, I'm delighted to have the chance to officiate this wedding tomorrow at 5.07. Sheila is sort of a numbers person, and 5.07 means a lot to her. So at 5.07, not 5.08, we're going to start promptly tomorrow with a short, un, un, uh, you don't have to dress up if you can come straight from work. If you're a member of the body, you're encouraged to come celebrate a uh, really a cool redemptive story. So I'm excited about that. Let me pray. God, we are thankful to have the chance to worship you in sermon and song and supper this morning. Lord, I pray that you would guide our time, that you would uh, stretch our time Take us to the things that we need to enjoy about you. Lord, take us to you, really. Pray that through this time that we spend together, we'll come into your presence. Lord, also this morning, I want to lift up another church in our area. I want to lift up the church RC, a church in Roy City that is really growing quickly. And Lord, we just want to entrust them to you. I ask you to bless them. I ask you to guide them, Lord. I pray for your wisdom as they are growing and trying to answer the many needs and demands of a growing church, Lord, I pray for her leadership that you would give them a, 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 just a health, a wisdom, a like-mindedness, um, a responsiveness, Lord, that they would, would uh, accommodate 
and uh, disciple those that you are bringing. Lord, we entrust them to you and thankful for the chance to pray for them this morning. We're praying these things this morning in Christ's name. Amen. You can turn to the book of Job. Page number four, you in the, in the, the Bible that's in the seat bottom in front of you is page 417. That may work for some other, ver- uh, other English Standard versions, depending on what copy you have. Um, but you probably have a table of contents up front if that doesn't help you. Page 417. Job. The book of Job is a wisdom book. Okay, we're studying wisdom literature, basically, for the next um, couple of months. We've been in the book of Job for the last three weeks or so, and uh, we will finish the book of Job in that period of time. There's a big section of dialogues that we will cover uh, really quickly. But this section, the first couple of chapters and really the last few chapters, we want to move very slowly and very carefully. And we are in chapter 1 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 30, excuse me, 13 through 22. Let me sort of give you a little recap Job is a good man. He is the Proverbs poster boy. If there were a man, if there were a, a bulletin board for the book of Proverbs, Job would be on it. Uh, God says of Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So far in the book of Job, in this first chapter, we've realized that this guy's fate is being decided in a divine council where he hasn't been invited. He's oblivious to the fact that it's even going on simultaneously with his life. He doesn't have counsel represented there, representing him there. This divine counsel is going on in the high court of heaven, and it is deciding his fate. And someone who is there, surprisingly, is Satan. Something we considered last week is what is Satan doing there and what is he up to? And I dealt with a question last week that Satan is doing what he does. He's been prowling around looking for someone to devour, in the words of Peter. He's been walking the earth looking for somebody to mess with. And here in this divine council, he's also doing something else that he's great at. He's accusing. His name actually means accuser. He's accusing Job of being a mercenary, of his faith really being a mercenary faith where he's really just in it for the loot. He's accusing Job ultimately, functionally, of being a hypocrite. That you don't really love God, you just love what God does for you. And he's also accused God of underwriting that mercenary faith by protecting him and blessing him with all the goods. We considered last week that Satan is doing what he does in chapter 1. One of the things I brought up last week that I hope hits you funny, and if it doesn't, or if it didn't then, then it might now, this thought that God is doing what he does. In verse 8, it's really a shocking uh, development in this story. Just look at what happens here in verse 8. Satan's been prowling around looking for someone to devour. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? You hungry? Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the face of the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. I hope that hits you funny. I hope you're going, how in the world is this going to make us wise? This seems out of place. But I would argue that this is wisdom literature and that we're making sense of God doing what he does right here. It's a tough notion, but it's something that wise people wrangle with and try and make sense of. God is allowing Satan to test Job. He says later in verse 12, he says, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. 
only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and really got to work. Man, a good, loving, protecting, caring, merciful, graceful God, the same God that we worship and enjoy, allowed Satan to test a blameless and upright man who fears God. And here's the crazy notion. He virtually served him up. He virtually served him up. So let's see what happens in verse 13. And we're really only going to go as far as verse 18 this morning, I think. We're just for our sake of time, and next week we will look at the rest of chapter 1. I want to, as I read this passage, I want to encourage you to look and listen for repeated words. That's Bible study 101. Look and listen for repeated words and phrases, and also think about some of the imagery that comes to mind in this passage. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. The ancient reader and the ancient uh, hearer would have heard and seen some things here that, is ve- that are very difficult for us to see. There's a device that they're using here. The device is called a chiasmus. We use chiasmus in contemporary language, contemporary um, speeches and some writings and things like that. Then here's an example of something that might be familiar to you as, an, as a chiasmus. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Okay, a chiasmus is simply the inversion of the second of two parallel phrases. Okay, we don't, it's not that hard. Here's a couple of more examples. Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy, was a master at this. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Okay, here's another. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. Okay, those are chiasmus. They're contemporary examples, more, many more contemporary examples, but I think in some ways the contemporary examples are more about making a phrase catchy and making a speech have some impact. In fact, uh, I found those examples on a speech writing website that started with this phrase, you can't give the speech of your life until you first give life to your speeches. Chiasmus are great tools at that. I mean, that's catchy. It gets you. Well, there's some ancient examples, some ancient usages that that weren't about being catchy. Jesus, for example, said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted, the inversion of the second of two phrases. He who wishes to be first will be last, and the last will be first. Now, in ancient Hebrew and Greek writings, chiasmus was used to call attention to something. Okay, a portion of preaching this morning may feel a little bit like a Bible study, but it's because we have to climb into the ancient reader 
uh, an ancient hearer's mindset so that we will see what they would have seen, obviously, firsthand. I want to show you, if I can, the chiasmus in this passage that will help you make sense of what God is up to with Job. Can you put my sandwich up there? I think we're early enough in the morning where it's not dangerous. In the second service, the sandwich might be a problem. But for now, I'm just going to leave the sandwich up here, and I'm going to sort of help you visualize the chiasmus in this passage. Okay? You may have been paying attention to repeated phrases. There is a repeated phrase in there that's a lob. Okay? And I'm the only one that survived to tell you. Okay? Every one of these accounts, I'm not going to deal with that repeated phrase. That might have some sort of special meaning, but that's not where I'm going this morning. That's not the point of the chiasmus that I want to show you. Okay, the chiasmus. There's eating and drinking in verses 13 and 19. Think of those as the bun, okay, or the bread on this handsome sandwich. Now, I'm not a cherry tomato fan, but we'll deal with those in a minute. And I don't know what kind of meat that is, but it looks delicious. And the bread looks like it was just gathered out of the field and just smashed into a, a loaf and, like, really good bread. So the bun in this chiasmus, the buns, are eating and drinking wine. Okay, that's the top and the bottom. Kind of think of it visually like that. And think of it like the sandwich. The bun, although delicious, is probably more just really holding together the really good part. Okay, it's a way to just maneuver the really good part into your mouth. Okay? The next, the, the lettuce and the cherry tomatoes in this, in, in this image behind us are in verses 15 and 17, the edge of the sword from the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. Okay? We're still not getting to the real good part yet, but the two outer parts or the four outer parts at this point, the buns and the lettuce and tomato are bringing us to the real central part of this chiasmus, fire from heaven in verse 16. That's the meat. That's the delicious meat. Okay, the ancient chiasmus was used for the purpose of calling attention, not especially to the thing at the very center, but it, it, very, making it very important what's going on in the whole chiasmus. But the, when you get to the center, you can really get to the good, good part. Okay, in some ways, if you sort of diagram it like a, like a pyramid, you can think of it kind of like an arrow. It's pointing, the point of the arrow is pointing to the point that is being made in the ancient chiasmus. Okay, so we're going to try in the next few minutes kind of make sense, try and make sense of this chiasmus. We see food in the eating and drinking. That's the buns. We see sharp blades. That's the uh, lettuce and cherry tomatoes. And then we see fire at the very center. That's the meat. These would be, again, very familiar to the ancient reader and worshiper. Um, and it's also something that would be part of Israel's story so much so that they would recognize the chiasmus and the use of the chias chiasmus. Now, we're going to spend the next couple minutes trying to figure out what is going on here in this chiasmus. First of all, the eating and drinking. Let's deal with the buns. You can take the picture down because I want people to dream about lunch. Okay? We're going to deal with the buns first, the eating and drinking. You can start at the beginning of the Bible and start looking for eating and drinking sort of stories to try and make sense of what might be going on here. We want to look for imagery that involves all three parts of this sandwich, the buns, the lettuce and the cherry tomatoes and the meat, okay? I mean, we can, look, we can see some eating and, and drinking examples. We see eating in the garden. Obviously, we see forbidden eating taking place and then the fall of man. We see Abraham feeding his visitors, okay? There's a meal that goes on. You see Jacob and Esau. There's lots of eating going on in Jacob and Esau's story where Jacob is, is fooling his father and then Jacob is uh, fooling his brother, and trading a birth, uh, his birthright for a bowl of soup. 
Lots of eating going on there. This eating in the wilderness where manna falls from the sky. Okay, but eating and drinking, I think this might be where we're going here in the next couple minutes. Turn to the book of Leviticus, chapter 3. This is the only, really the only other place I'm going to have you go this morning in addition to Job is in the book of Leviticus. That's on page 82 of the Bible that you have in your seat in front of you. Leviticus chapter 3. The reason that we have to work in making sense of this chiasmus, I think, is because we don't spend a lot of time in Leviticus. The ancient reader and writer, the ancient Israelite, would have spent a lot of time in the book of Leviticus. They would be very familiar with this thing that's going on in the book of Leviticus. But we're going to try and explore if maybe we can make sense of what the ancient writer is doing with this chiasmus in the book of Job. Dealing first with eating and drinking. Let me read this passage to you in Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1. This is having to do with the peace offerings. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering... He, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering, the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood, on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, let me just kind of draw out what's going on here in this piece. Very unfamiliar thing to us that we need to be familiar with this morning. We've got an unblemished animal that's being delivered by a human being that's bringing this animal for the purpose of experiencing God through what's about to take place. This worshiper, the peace offering didn't necessarily have to do with some sort of sin that they're dealing with. This peace offering worshiper wants to just come into the presence of the Lord. So this worshiper brings an unblemished animal. And this unblemished animal becomes a food offering to the Lord. And specifically, especially the food that's offered are the fatty portions. The fatty portions in ancient Israel and in a lot of cultures even now are the prime uh, part of the animal. A couple of years ago, Luke and I got to go to Chechnya, and we were invited to a Chechen home and ate a Chechen meal, and they gave Luke, who was sort of the youngest there, special guest, they gave him a bowl of what looked like mashed potatoes, and Luke dug into this to find, come to find out it was a bowl full of fat, and Luke didn't feel very well the next day. Just, just I don't know why, but he was offered this fatty portion because the fat is the good stuff, and in this peace offering, the fat is what is actually um, burned up and comes into the presence of the Lord. And the rest, though, this is sort of obscure in the passage, and it's something you may not realize, the rest is actually eaten by the priest and worshiper. Okay, there's eating going on as part of this peace offering, this peace sacrifice. The worshiper and priest, see it like this, ate with God, and God sort of eats. It says it's a food offering and a pleasing aroma to him. This adds, I think, a whole new meaning to the Lord's Supper that we take every single week. That part of this, at least this kind of sacrifice involved, eating and drinking with God. Okay, let's look at the next image. Let's look at the lettuce and the cherry tomatoes now and try and make sense of the edge of the sword. 
Just from the passage I just read in Leviticus chapter 3, you can get the sense that the temple and tabernacle must have been like a butcher shop. I don't imagine it was real tidy and clean. I don't imagine that, that uh, it smelled like um, essential oils. I think the priests had to had been quite effective with a blade. Okay, just from this one offering that we read about here that we considered in the peace offering, you see that the fat that is covering the entrails has to be separated. The fat that's on the two kidneys has to be separated. The fat that's on the loins has to be separated. And the fat that's on the long lobe of the liver. First of all, you have to know some anatomy. You have to know what a liver is, <laughs> the long lobe and the kidneys. Second of all, you need to know how to separate the fat from the animal and the entrails. You got to be good with a knife. You got to be able to separate those things. You got to be able to slice and dice. And I think that the ancient priest must have been really, really good with a knife, along with a keen knowledge of where to cut and how to go about it. Uh, I started hunting, deer hunting years ago when Christy and I were dating. Christy's family were big deer hunters, and I had the chance to go hunting with her dad. And I remember the first time I ever dropped a deer off at the deer processor. And uh, it's, that's an experience in and of itself. If you've never done that, even if you don't hunt, go with somebody that's dropping a deer off the deer processor. Because it's amazing. The guys that come out and grab this deer, they're doing it all day long. Okay? They come out and grab this deer, and they have these knives that are so sharp that they could just barely touch an animal and that this flesh, our skin, just falls away from this thing. And the guys usually are missing a couple fingers, you know, because there's a learning curve, you know. And, but these guys are really good with a knife, man, and they can slice and they can dice, and it smells in there. It smells like blood. I mean, imagine that. It smells like blood. And I'm imagining what, what that might do to inform what this tabernacle and temple was like where the priest is slicing and dicing all day, where he's sacrificing an animal, animal, and first of all, blood is going everywhere. They're, sl they're slicing his throat. Blood is pouring out. The, the priest is taking some of that blood. He's throwing it, not dabbling it, throwing it against the side of the altar. Can you smell it? Can you hear it splatter? And then, man, he's slicing and dicing. Some of the imagery of what's going on with Job's family begin to connect here. There's eating and drinking. There's slicing and dicing. The priestly work was a sharp, painful, bloody work. The sacrificial system involved sharp blades, slicing and dicing, and the sacrificial system involved eating and drinking. The third thing, the third image that we have here, let's deal with the little meat or the meat section in the center there, the fire from heaven. Burnt offerings were a central part of this system we've been reading about. Just turn the page over to Leviticus chapter 1. Let's read just a little small section here about the burnt offering. Beginning in verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. It's a little theme there. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that's at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. That's removing the skin from the animal. 
And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and his legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Let's just draw out some of the ingredients here. First of all, we're dealing with, in this case, an unblemished male. The peace offering could be a male or female. In this case, it is an unblemished male. The worshiper brings this to deal with some sin issues to, so that he can stand in, be in good standing with the Lord. He lays his hand on the head of the animal saying, this is my replacement, is what he's saying. And then he slices his throat, kills the animal. They flay the animal, they cut it up, slicing and dicing, and they burn all of it on the altar with fire. And this, too, becomes a food offering. I want you to become acquainted with the word. It's just a parking place, so don't be turned off by the notion of a parking place, a word that might be unusual to you. It's the word sublimation. It's a chemistry word. Okay, the word sublimation actually means a transition from a solid to a gas without passing through liquid form. Okay, that's a chemistry way of describing what happened on the burnt offering every single time a burnt offering took place. It happens as an offering where a worshiper brings an unblemished replacement and places his hand on the animal's head, cuts the throat, the blood is drained, the priest slices and dices like a butcher, entrails, fat, skin, bones, meaty portions are all separated and then it's all burnt up on the altar. And the outcome is a satisfying aroma to God because this thing, this replacement for the worshiper, is sublimated through fire into the very presence of the Lord. The worshiper then, through the substitute, is sublimated into the presence of God. And that's what's going on with a burnt offering worship. The sacrificial system involved fire, vapor, smoke, and sublimation into God's presence, along with eating and drinking with God, and along with um, slicing and dicing. This chiasmus seems to be calling to attention the sacrificial system. It's something that would be lost on contemporary worshipers if we weren't paying attention. Just in case we missed it, let's look at verses 18 and 19 and see what's going on there. Verses 18 and 19 of this passage. While he was yet speaking of, excuse me, back in Job chapter 1. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. This was likely the oldest brother's birthday. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. In case we missed the point, the, the, the big arrow that I would say points to the sacrificial system in these previous passages in this chiasmus, then maybe we might see it in this wind that folds in the four corners of the house, killing all his sons and daughters on his oldest son's birthday. Clearly, this is supernatural wind. Hardly a day goes by that I don't look at my little weather app on my phone because I want to know where the wind's blowing. Anybody that rides a bicycle any period of time wants to know where the wind's blowing because you need to know where you're going to be doing your work. Okay? And seldom, I, really, I can't recall ever where I've pulled up that, that weather app and noticed that the wind is blowing from all four directions at one time. 
Usually, it's a single cardinal direction. I would, fa- I would in fact say that every single occasion that I've ever looked at it up to now, it's a cardinal direction that the wind is blowing from and blowing to. Even if it's a strong, gusty wind, I've never had an occasion to see it blowing from four cardinal directions at the same time. I mean, can you imagine being a spectator of that? You can imagine it's got to be a strong wind. Even if you just took one of those cardinal directions, it's probably going to be one of those winds that gathers up tumbleweeds. You've got tumbleweeds rolling in. It might even be a wind strong enough to gather up a mobile home or two, and they're rolling in. Okay, and you've got four of those that are coming together in a single direction, or not in a single direction, in a single space. We're clearly talking about a supernatural wind coming from and hitting the four corners of this house. This, these phrases that I wanted to call attention to this morning, the four corners is one of those phrases. The four corners, too, is sacrificial language. Listen to these few passages from the book of Exodus, chapter 27, verse 2. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. That's the bronze altar. Its horns shall be one, be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Later in the chapter in verse 4. You shall all also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. In Exodus chapter 37, there's language talking about the Ark of the Covenant. He cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners at its four legs. In Exodus chapter 38, there's a passage talking about the burnt offering altar. He made horns for it on its four corners. Its horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze. More sacrificial language. This house that holds Job's treasures is like one big altar with four corners that fold in from the wind. Now, in case you might think this is a contrivance, I, I, I get that, you know, times you're hearing a sermon, you're hearing the handling of a passage. I've been in church my whole life. There are times where you're going, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm buying that. That might be a little bit of gymnastics there. Let me just ask you to consider this. If you think this might be a contrivance, I want you to consider Where did these catastrophes come from? Well, the edge of the sword came from the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. Okay, we know that. Where did the fire come from? The fire came, it says, from heaven. The fire came from heaven. Another place that you might think about where that happened is where Elijah does battle with the prophets of Baal. The fire came from heaven. And the wind, the word for wind there is the same word that's used to identify the Holy Spirit in Genesis chapter 1. Where the spirit, the ruach, the wind of God is hovering over the face of the waters. It had the sense here that the ruach is the same word that the Holy Spirit folded the four corners of this house in like one big altar. It was a supernatural wind targeting this house full of Job's children. And it appears that it came from God. I think the point I want to make this morning with this chiasmus, I think the point that develops in this chiasmus and the point that develops in the wind and what happens to the four corners being folded in this house is that this passage looks like God sacrificed Job. Now, I told you, I hope you're you're sort of bogged down on God doing what he does here. I don't know if I like the thought of God serving someone up. I think this chiasmus and the ancient writer is pointing the ancient reader and the contemporary reader in here to the thought that God sacrifices his sons. 
God sacrifices his sons. He's doing here what he does. It's not the only time he's done it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20 says, The Lord has taken you, speaking of Israel, and he's brought you out of the iron furnace, out of 400 years of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance. He could have liberated them in year one. But God's doing what God does. In Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10, this is speaking about the exiles. He says, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. God doing what he does with his sons. He spoke of Israel as his son. Seems that's the same thing he's done with Job. Do you think he might be doing that with us? Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Let's just import the language, sons of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It seems God is doing what he does. He sacrifices his sons. Two thoughts that might help you with this notion. First of all, God sacrifices good things, not ugly things. He didn't call for the three-legged lamb and the buck-tooth lamb. He called for the unblemished and fine thing to be sacrificed and offered. And that's what Job was, the finest in the east. A man who was blameless and upright and feared the Lord. Now let me just to tell you that there's some suffering that you can experience just because you're being a bonehead and because you've been a knucklehead and you have sent yourself headlong into sin and you're dealing with the consequences. The suffering that I'm speaking of right here is the kind of suffering that was not a result of your sin. It might be someone else's sin. It might be circumstance. It might be whatever that you can't put your finger on. But sufferings that we all go through that are not our fault. That's what this book of Job is about. He holds fast to his integrity throughout the book saying, my sin did not cause this. And his friends are saying, yeah, it did. It must have. Because good things happen to bad, or good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. So you must have sinned. Man, I want to encourage you with the notion that God sacrifices good things, not ugly things. Job was unblemished and blameless. Your suffering may not be the result of sin at all. It may be a God that's working glory in you, sublimating you through suffering into his presence. Man, I just want to help. I, I hope that helps you maybe reframe some stuff. Some stuff in your life that's either going on right now or has gone on or stuff that you see those who are dear to you that they're having to go through where you can sort of make sense of it. That God has re- given us a chance to reframe that and see that, man, he's not messing with you. He wasn't snoozing. He wasn't off the clock somehow when this thing went down in your life that he may actually be using it to sublimate you into his very presence. I think that's the the hope that I have for this morning. I've shared with folks over the years from this pulpit 
that, uh, and I can share very freely and comfortably with Evan and Luke here. It was years ago that when they were a little bitty that we found out about their vision. It was also years before that, a couple of years before that, before they were born, that Christy and I realized that marriage wasn't easy for us. We've taken, recently taken some personality tests that suggest that this is going to be difficult for the two of y'all. It's pretty funny. It makes me laugh here in year 23. 23, right? Something like that. <laughs> Something like that. We're coming up on 23 or 24, I forget. But man, I think if someone were to ask me why I'm doing what I do now in full-time ministry, I would have to run to the things that God has used in my life personally. And I would also uh, add in there uh, stuttering through my childhood and being an overweight child. The things that were hard for Ben McGraw. The things that I would say my, were my sufferings. Okay, and the things that Christy and I have wrangled with and struggled with in our marriage. And the things that we've... Um, struggle with as a family and the things that we've watched Evan and Luke have to reckon with, that God is reframing those for us. Say, man, it's not in spite of those. It's not because it's not, those things weren't obstacles to us experiencing the Lord. They were the ways that we experienced the Lord. He sublimated us into his presence. Man, I hope the book of Job does that for you all. I don't know that you ever get to the point where you say, oh, thank you. Thank you for marital struggles. Hmm. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Thank you for visual impairment. That sounds wonderful. I really like the sound of that. Nobody's saying that, and nobody's suggesting that that should be ever, ever be the way that you treat it. There's something wrong with you if you think, oh, thank you. I'm glad I have cancer. It's ridiculous. But you can let it be reframed through a wisdom book like this and see that the God of Job is the God of you, and that he's bringing you into his presence through it. Man, that's a good God. I love that kind of God. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for our time together this morning, thankful for this reframing that you're giving us as we see this story of Job and see this imagery of a God who's sacrificing something fine. Lord, I'm thankful that you bring your sons into your presence. Lord, we enjoy this morning that ultimately you've done that through your own son, through suffering, that you brought him into your presence and he is seated and reigning and ruling and in session right now. Lord, I pray for those who might be struggling with one thing or another, trying to make sense of some suffering or some pain or some difficulty right now, that it will bring some meaning and some purpose and some understanding to a God who knows, a God who sees, a God who cares, a God who loves, and a God that cares for his sons enough to bring us into his presence. You are a good God, Lord. We're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.